KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota Dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. Good morning, I'm Debbie Cruz. It's Monday, January 22nd. Technology and the information it gathers is empowering patients. More on what some people are calling DIY medicine, next. But first, let's do the headlines. Privacy rights advocates say a proposal that goes before the San Diego City Council tomorrow would water down the city's ordinance for reviewing surveillance technology. Mayor Todd Gloria is pushing for the changes, which would exempt entire categories of technology from review, including police databases and fixed security cameras. In 2022, the City Council established rules for reviewing the city's surveillance technology. Departments had one year to identify and approve equipment, but only a handful of items made it through the process. The deadline has since been pushed back by three years. Gloria has argued that the ordinance is too broad and ties up city departments with unnecessary review of benign technologies. There are two final public forums this week where officials hope to learn what San Diegans want in their next chief of police. The current chief, David Nislite, is stepping down in June. Tomorrow's meeting starts at 6 in the evening at the 4th District Seniors Resource Center in southeastern San Diego. The last public meeting will be on Wednesday. There's also an online survey where you can share your input. You can find more information on Wednesday's meeting and the survey on our website, kpbs.org. Pre-enrollment starts today for Universal Transitional Kindergarten in the San Diego Unified School District. UTK offers early learning to any child in the district who will turn four by September 1st. Beginning today through February 2nd, families can stop by their neighborhood elementary school to sign up. We want parents to feel welcome and not overwhelmed, and we want them to feel that their school is part of their community. And I think this enrollment process and shifting it to the school sites is really going to help with that. If a UTK spot is not available at their home school, parents will be offered enrollment at another nearby campus. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com. The practice of medicine is changing from the days when you follow doctor's orders and waited for them to tell you why you're sick. Patients are taking a more assertive role in monitoring their health. SciTech reporter Thomas Fudge says the difference today is technology in the hands of patients and the information that comes from it. Dennis Thomas O'Connor, now 75 years old, talks about the health problems he's had. They include heart disease, prostate cancer, and being seriously overweight. But he was lucky to meet the right doctor and learn about the tools he could use to take control of his health. And it gave me a sense of empowerment, it gave me a sense of knowing what to do and think about my health and getting this feedback on a constant basis. I'm no longer in denial. I no longer ignore 
you know, symptoms, just the opposite. O'Connor's toolkit includes a Fitbit, an Aura Ring that monitors sleep and body temperature, an Apple Watch, and a Cardio Monitor, which can give his heart an EKG at home. He monitors his health daily, and the graph data from his monitor show up on the computer screen of his doctor, Michael Carisu. Carisu is founder of a virtual clinic he calls Measured Wellness, which he runs out of his Carlsbad home. He remembers when he started seeing patients. The typical patient from that small cohort that started were patients who were somewhat the, the medical system had no answers for them, and they had to kind of go and do it on their own. And they're, they're just re- meeting roadblocks in the traditional medical world, and they wanted to learn more about themselves. When he talks about patients, Kurisu says they have a partnership. It's not a hierarchy with a doctor at the top. He says his patients share a strong motivation to take charge of their health, and it's not incorrect to call it do-it-yourself medicine. You know, it's just like the Home Depot. It's like, well, I, I, I don't, I'm not going to get the plumber to come. to. I'm going to learn how to do this myself. Here's another way to look at it. Benjamin Smarr compares it to the Protestant Reformation and the Catholic Church, which only published the Bible in Latin. You had to know Latin, which meant you had to go ask the priest, you know, what, what should I do? And Protestantism came out of this idea that if the Bible was translated into the vernacular, everybody could read their Bible and figure out what do they want to do as a community. I think this is a really interesting parallel to what we're seeing in medicine these days. Smar is a professor at UCSD who splits his time between bioengineering and data science. Students in Smar's lab have analyzed some of the data collected by Carisu's patients. They look for patterns and spikes that could indicate poor health. Smar says medicine's old priesthood, the doctors, are entering a new relationship with patients, and he hopes that relationship will be supportive and respectful. The expectation that a doctor just magically knows the right answer for everything is totally unfair. That's not how we treat any other person. Mm -hmm. Expecting that they have an expertise and that they could contribute and that we could together augment and make a better decision, I think that's a much healthier relationship. When you are monitoring your health hour by hour, Kurisu says the effects on your body can be known to people very quickly. You can see how certain foods affect you, right? You can, you know, eat, eat pizza, see what happens to your blood glucose. Stress also shows up in a patient's data. The third Tuesday of every month, one of my patients says all of his data was just crashing all the time. Like it was like, wow, your heart rate's going down. Like your glucose is all over the place. You know, your sleep was terrible, you know, and you know, every, it became a pattern. And so like, well, what happened Tuesdays? They're like, well, that's when my mother-in-law comes in the house to take, take care of the kids. Patients who monitor themselves have to make the time to do it, and they have to be motivated. Carisu's patient, Dennis O'Connor, says he wasn't always motivated, but that changed after he had heart surgery and had to get two stents in his arteries. Motivationally, I was dying, okay? Two years before that, I'd had prostate surgery. I'd been hit with the fear of death, and that did wake me up. That's when he really started looking at his health using modern technology, And since then, he says he's lost 100 pounds. Thomas Fudge, KPBS News. The U.S. Supreme Court will take up a major case about homeless encampments on the West Coast. As Chula Vista debates its own next steps on homelessness, reporter Corey Suzuki says that case is taking center stage. The question at the center of the case is whether it's unconstitutional for a city to ban people from camping on public property if they have nowhere else to sleep. In 2018, a federal appeals court said yes, bans like that are unconstitutional. But the Supreme Court could overrule that decision later this year. 
The debate has taken center stage in Chula Vista. The county's second largest city is still deciding how to regulate homelessness. Community advocate Sebastian Martinez says bans should be unconstitutional. He says the 2018 ruling has forced cities to add more resources for unhoused people. You know, Chula Vista, I don't know that you'd see any projects related to creating shelter for unhoused people were it not for rulings like that. The debate in Chula Vista has also drawn in top law enforcement officials, like District Attorney Summer Steffen. At a recent city council meeting, she argued that the 2018 ruling should be overturned. Somebody should not be on the street, and the person should also have opportunities to live decently in safe shelter and housing. But legally, the two are, should not be combined. The Chula Vista City Council plans to continue discussion in the coming weeks. The Supreme Court is expected to start hearing its case in April. Corey Suzuki, KPBS News. The San Diego Regional Task Force on Homelessness has its 2024 point-in-time count this Thursday. Joining me today is Task Force CEO Tamara Kohler. Welcome to the podcast, Tamara. Thank you, Debbie, for having me. First, what is the annual point-in-time count? Why, that's a good question. It is a required activity. It's a census of folks experiencing homelessness. It is required of a continuum of care. It's a federally authorized and and required activity. And it actually is a, a way for us to count on just one night, generally how many people are experiencing homelessness in the entire county. And what is the information collected during the count used for? Well, you know, it it is used for three very specific reasons. One, we're required to do the count for federal funding that comes to the community. Secondly, the state now requires uh, that we do this count to provide information. And thirdly, it gives us demographic information. It lets us know uh, maybe increases in individuals who are, say, 55 or older. It lets us sort of see what the landscape looks like of families experiencing homelessness, how people are experiencing homelessness. So those that are in vehicles, uh, those in tents, and also those that are in our shelter system. The count is an imperfect way to measure how many people in San Diego County are homeless. Remind us why that is. Yeah, I was going to say it is not a perfect count, right? Because it is a large geography. We're trying to engage folks that are many times Uh, difficult to find. And so it's really important that we level set that it's a minimum count. It is everyone that we can find on that early morning. It is not a finite number of individuals, but it gives us an overall understanding. So when we put these numbers together, it's important that we use the language that it is no less than this number of individuals. And it is only on one given night. So that number doesn't represent the deep need of folks experiencing homelessness over say a year's worth of time. So it is one night, it is everyone that we can find. It is just a a census and census work doesn't, isn't a perfect science, but it is a required activity We do it to the standards that are required both federally and on a state level, but it is really, I I think you're right to call it imperfect in the sense that it won't capture everybody. Is the task force making any changes this year in an effort to address some of those drawbacks? You know, we have 43 deployment sites across the region, so we added two more uh, in areas where we have been seeing throughout the year uh, more people experiencing homelessness. Uh, We are 
uh, still calling for volunteers because what makes it a better count is the number of people that we can get out in um, these communities, walking them, engaging uh, with folks. That's how we make it a, a better count and improve it. It will always have these sort of limitations and drawbacks, but as a general practice, our community really supports us well in the numbers that are needed to do as robust of a count as we can, considering just the size of our county. It's a very large geography. And what were some things that stood out to you in terms of last year's count? You know, I think the rise that we're seeing in um, folks that are 55 or older, the oldest person that we engaged last year was an 85-year-old gentleman, unsheltered. Uh, so we are seeing a significant increase. That's one of the advantages of the count is as imperfect as it is, it is something that gives us important trend data. In the counts we started seeing a few years ago, a significant increase in folks 55 or older experiencing homelessness for the first time, many of them unsheltered, and also two-thirds of them having some form of a disability, a lot of that being a mobility uh, issue. And so the the data that we collect is so important for us to better understand how the populations are changing. We saw an increase in families last year as well. So we're really interested to see how that trend data will look this year as well. I've been speaking with Tamara Kohler, the CEO of the San Diego Regional Task Force on Homelessness. Tamara, thank you for all this information and for joining me on the San Diego News Now podcast. Thank you, Debbie. To sign up to volunteer for the count, Go to rtfhsd.org. The county is now offering a program to help first-time home buyers. Reporter Melissa May tells us about the program and who qualifies. The County of San Diego's Down Payment and Closing Cost Assistance Program, or DCCA, is helping some San Diegans buy their first home. Felipe Morillo with Housing and Community Development Services says first-time homebuyers can use this deferred loan valued up to 22% of the sale price for a down payment and up to $10,000 in closing costs. The benefits of this are that you don't have to make a monthly payment. Uh, it's a deferred payment, so you don't pay until you sell the home or if you want to refinance and pay the, the loan off early, you can do that as well. DCCA currently has about $2 million available until the end of June. The San Diego Housing Commission has more about the DCCA program and how to apply on its website, sdhc.org. Melissa May, KPBS News. The old lighthouse at Cabrillo National Monument is currently closed for repairs. Reporter John Carroll tells us about the work taking place that should safeguard the historic structure for years to come. We're currently working on the interior of the lighthouse, and then later this year we'll be moving to do the exterior. Larry Waldrop from the National Park Service's Historic Preservation Training Center is talking about the work he and his team are doing at the iconic lighthouse at the end of Point Loma. They've fixed plaster where water had seeped in around the spiral staircase, and they're repainting it with a kind of paint that is better suited to a lighthouse on a hill above the Pacific Ocean. A more breathable, vapor-permeable coating that will be better for the marine environment here. 
As Waldrop said, a Park Service team will be back in late spring or early summer to paint the exterior with the vapor permeable paint. Just one more action to preserve a landmark that warned ships away from the rocky shores of Point Loma from 1855 to 1891. John Carroll, KPBS News. The Lighthouse should reopen to the public by Wednesday. That's it for the podcast today. As always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. Join us again tomorrow for the day's top stories. I'm Debbie Cruz. Thanks for listening and have a great Monday. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com.